Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining Wilson Cincini's Electronic Gaming Group podcast. I'm Mary O'Brien, an associate at Wilson. I'm thrilled to have you join me as I interview several of my colleagues and dig into key topics surrounding early stage gaming companies. The information in this podcast episode is for general information purposes only and may not reflect current law in your jurisdiction. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation, and this information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking legal or other professional advice from an appropriately licensed professional in the recipient state, country, or other appropriate jurisdiction. Today I have with me Andrew Poling, Senior Counsel in our Boston office, and John McGarrigan, a partner in our Palo Alto office, both in our Technology Transactions Department. Andrew, John, can you tell me a little bit about yourselves and what made you interested in video games? Hey, this is Andrew. I grew up playing video games from a young age, starting with dating myself on Atari and NES and arcade games and still playing today. Got a PlayStation and a, a Switch playing with my kids. Was a developer before law school and was building edutainment games for uh, uh, training pharmaceutical sales reps and, and other uses and was really interested in, in games from a, a professional standpoint, but rather than move out west to to do development for a, a gaming company, decided to go back to, to law school and find this nexus between those personal interests, IP law, and and uh, my my experience uh, doing uh, or developing games previously. Hey, Mary, this is John. Thanks for having us. This is a, a great opportunity to, to get together and talk about these issues. My my background is similar. You know, I grew up um, probably around the same time as Andrew, and, and I think my first video gaming was also on an Atari, and my family never had game consoles, um, so I was always, you know, trying to keep up with my friends and always getting destroyed on video games uh, <laughs> play with my with my friends. Um, and now my main source of, of video gaming is with my kids again, and I'm I'm back to feeling the same way. They're all every time I try and sit down and play with them, they just destroy me. But it's still fun. But as I as I got older, I actually spent quite a, a few years as a working musician, and and in order to sort of <laughs> pay the bills, I was also a, a software developer. So my my interest in software and technology, you know, in, in a professional capacity, sort of comes from that area, or that era rather, and. Um, and in particular, my interest in open source software comes from from back in those days where we were doing a lot of, you know, exploring issues around uh, what we could do with third party code and and how we could leverage our own code and, and open source licenses in in the, the field. And in particular, I think games as a now as a professional in the intellectual property licensing world, games and game environments are a really fascinating place in which you know, there is an IP technology platform in which other people can come and, and participate in creating yet more, more intellectual property. And so sort of my professional interest in games and game environments is, is uh, focused in that area, and in particular, how um, the licensing issues apply in, in those contexts. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting to have a, a chance to talk to you about it. Yeah, thank you very much for both being on. So open source is something that a lot of founders consider leveraging when they're developing their proprietary game. And I was hoping on a high level, could you explain what open source software actually is and why it's so popular now? 
Sure. I'm interested in Andrew's take here as well. I think people mean a, a couple of different things. There's this sort of colloquial open source, and, and then there is what lawyers mean when they say it's open source. So, so let's start with what lawyers mean. Software is licensed for use, right, under, under the terms of a license agreement. Historically, proprietary software, which is the sort of word given to licenses that, uh, that grant limited rights, like just to install a binary copy and use it on your computer. That was the sort of mode of distribution and, and commercialization of software. In the academic community, a movement started to try and share the, the underlying source code, like the, the lines of computer code that a developer actually writes amongst other academics. And, and to do that, those folks wanted to say, hey, I'm going to grant you permission to use this source code and to do whatever you want with it. And I'm also going to disclaim all my liability. And there were really, really sort of brief license statements that that had that permission and that disclaimer. And that's that was the sort of birth of open source software. So it refers to the the license itself, actually, not not necessarily just the fact that source code might be available more colloquially. Um, folks might refer to open source just to mean software whose source code is available, but really technically there are industry definitions of what an open source license constitutes and, and what attributes it has. So there are certainly areas in which you might see some, uh, some source available or other kinds of models that involving source code distribution that aren't technically open source, and we can talk a little bit about that later. Andrew, yeah. what do you think? <laughs> I, I totally agree. I mean, my experience doing deal work and working with developers, you know, as their outside counsel, they like to think that any source code that they find online is open source and that there should be no problems available with it. But just because it's available online in source code format doesn't mean that it's open source. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's under a permissive license or that you can use it for any commercial use. It may be under commercial terms that apply to, to that distribution or that distro, that repo. There may be, it may be under open source license. It may be in the public domain. Maybe there are no licenses. Maybe the, the person who wrote that code has abandoned all their copyrights and an IP in it, and uh, you know you can do whatever you want. There's no license. So yeah, I, I think that there are definitely misunderstandings with what means or what is meant by open source from a technical perspective versus you know colloquially. And just, just so we're clear on that last point that you made there, Andrew, there there are instances in which developers affirmatively contribute something to the public domain, but that's actually one of the trouble spots that I often see folks run into is, is a confusion between publicly available and public domain. So just as a sort of technical legal matter, copyright applies to those works when you or anybody else creates a piece of me, creates a piece of software, I own a copyright in it. It's actually quite difficult to commit it to the public domain. And just because I make it publicly available doesn't actually mean I'm granting rights under my under my copyrights. And so that's that is really the true distinction between an open source license and available source code. 
so I could publish my source code, but not license it. And, and again, I see that as a very common misunderstanding. In, in our world, we like to say, you know, lic no license equals no rights, right? If you find some source code online, that's great. You may be able to sort of learn from it from a knowledge standpoint, but you're not licensed. You're not, you don't have permission from the author to use it unless that has been granted in some form of license. That's all U.S. copyright law. It may be different copyright regimes and other <laughs> jurisdictions. A great point. We should qualify all this by saying we are U.S. <laughs> licensed attorneys. One of the gaming industry's earlier pioneers, John Carmack, is famous for licensing Doom and Quake as open source. Carmack's engines have been commercially licensed for blockbuster games like Half-Life, Call of Duty, and Medal of Honor. Does this mean that new gaming startup founders can just use Carmack's engines for whatever they want? What are the different types of open source and what obligations do they carry? Yeah, I, th I think there are a couple buckets um, that open source licenses fall into. You know, one is the more permissive licenses, business friendly licenses, whatever you want to call them. These are things like BSD style, MIT style, Apache style licenses. These tend to grant broad rights to the, the licensees. They have fewer <laughs> limited number of obligations. Usually it's it's at least attribution and, and notice, copyright notice uh, obligations. Um, some of them may have a few other obligations, like Apache has a, I think uh, Apache 2.0 has a limited patent termination clause and requires you to pass along the, the license with a, a copy of the software or a copy of the license with the software rather. Then the other bucket, the other kind of main bucket is the less permissive, less business friendly licenses. These are often called the copyleft licenses. There are things like the Mozilla license or the GPL or LGPL or a Faro GPL. And these have what we call viral license terms. So they often grant you rights to use, distribute, modify the software covered by those licenses, but availing yourself of certain rights may trigger obligations to make your code, your modifications, or the, the original code, or combinations of your code with the original code available under the same terms or similar terms. And there are, you know, you, you can subdivide that bucket, right? There are some that are less viral and some that are more viral, you know, like the the triggers that the, the cause the, the viral infection of, of code may be narrower or broader, you know, depending on the, the particular license. But those are the, the two main buckets. And they're, they're definitely a lot of outliers, like engineer drafted licenses. And you know, we can talk about some of those too. John, any but other I, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I as I listen to you talk, it I feel like it's it's important um, to share with the you know the audience. There's a lot of ideology in this area, and you use some words that that sort of fall on both sides of the ideology, right? The open source industry, um, as as a whole, largely you know this the the notion of a copy left license you know, it's a sort of a, a play on copyright and lefty politics where you know the information wants to be free right that that the the license itself influences a further um, obligation on the part of the user to to open source more than the original code that's the that's the, the sort of quintessential copyleft 
obligation. So you also heard Andrew talk about the viral effect or infecting other code. You know, that's that is the ideology of a proprietary software company saying, I don't want to be subject to an obligation like that. So you have perspectives and points of view in this um, in this field where people it, it like makes its way into the way people talk about all of this software. You know, this sort of more neutral term for this this attribute is a hereditary license. So you you hear people if they if you hear people talk about a viral license, a copyleft license, or a hereditary license, they're talking about the same thing. And that's this obligation that if you distribute copies of this software that the original software and something more, maybe if you make a modification, maybe if you make a, an addition, maybe if you create a derivative work that you would re be required to release that under similar terms. And then as Andrew said, there's the strong and the weak in those, um, that, that's a sort of a, an additional subdivision. And so the strong copylefts cast a broader net for what would what would be subject to that obligation and the the weak copyleft licenses are are more targeted it's worth sort of pointing out that distribution is is traditionally uh, what triggered those those copyleft or even the the informational compliance obligations. Andrew mentioned an Afero license that's even named after a particular license, but people will use that term to refer to a category of licenses that include compliance obligations, copyleft, and and otherwise. Even when software is deployed in a non-distributed, like a SaaS um, kind of context. So that's that's a, a word and a categorization and a, and a set of language um, in an open source license to be aware of that uh, some of the, the traditional distinctions around distributed software and, and non-distributed software are, are falling um, away in some of the licenses, not all, but some. Yeah, maybe to answer your oh, original question, Mary, it just because something is available under an open source license, it doesn't mean that you have rights to do whatever you want in in that game or in that code right like the the code for the the doom game engine is very limited right you can run it on linux only right it doesn't run on windows i think john carmack said that he couldn't run he couldn't release the dos version because he couldn't get a copyrighted sound library right so he's he's only available or he's only made it available to run on linux and uh, you still need the commercial doom code to to be able to run that original version of, of Doom. You may be able to make modifications, you may be able to redistribute it subject to the applicable open source license. But like John was saying, distributing it or you know modifying it may may trigger some other obligations for the licensee. That makes perfect sense. I was hoping you could touch a little bit more on the unconventional licenses you mentioned that were drafted by engineers. <laughs> well, there's there's all kinds of uh, lawyers often refer to them as vanity licenses, but there's like, you know, there's a beerware license, which says something about, you know, do when, do anything with uh, you like with the code. But if you ever uh, see me, you got to buy me a beer. There's there's a handful of uh, very sort of idiosyncratic provisions that make their way into licenses. There, there are some that are, you know, the FCC would be upset with us for including the, the full names in a podcast designed for the airwaves. But you know, there are a variety of things out there that that go even further away from looking like a legal document than many open source licenses already do. It, it's an interesting 
issue for businesses and for lawyers advising businesses because the consequence, and we can get to consequences of non non-compliance later, but it's it's sort of do I accept as a premise that I will have to buy this person a beer if I run into them in a bar, right? Okay, maybe that's I'm fine with doing that, but it's a weird thing to say as a business a person running a business that I've agreed to that in a legal agreement. You would never agree to that in any other commercial agreement. So why would I do that here? You know, as a practical matter, and and practices certainly vary among companies, but I think many businesses sort of take the view that those vanity licenses and those kind of idiosyncratic obligations are unlikely to be enforced that way. And so long as there are not other, you know, more meaningful compliance requirements in the in the licenses, I think many um, businesses take that sort of measured risk approach and say, I don't think somebody is going to assert an intellectual property claim over me because I failed to comply with the beerware um, requirement. I, I'm curious but about your approach there, Andrew. Do you have clients that are highly concerned about um, those sort of idiosyncratic licenses? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, my clients have run the gamut, frankly. I think most smaller clients, startups, they think that they're kind of low risk, low value targets for uh, licensors that may want to come out after them and, and look for some money. I have other clients that were larger, you know, multinational companies, and they had a, a much stricter view of what licenses were acceptable. I want to shout out the chicken dance license for being <laughs> especially oddball <laughs> and uh, generating some interesting conversations about risk and open source compliance. I think that the, the key is to have a good story as to why you think it's a reasonable risk, right? Especially if you're getting ready for an exit and you're going to have to do a due diligence exercise. Being able to explain to a, a purchaser that your use of this was low risk for whatever reason, you did good, not evil, or like you think that it's it's not really going to be enforceable. You know, this licensor has never enforced this, has never sued anyone. Having having some kind of reasonable story as to why your approach was reasonable is important. And Andrew actually raises the one that I will say causes probably the most consternation in the in the industry, which is the JSON license, which has this do good, not evil requirement in it. And I, I will say there are, I have a number of larger public companies who steer clear of that one, not because they think they do evil, but because they think other people might take issue with some of their, their business practices, right? You know, people are getting sued for antitrust violations, the big companies have targets on their back because they are doing interesting and different things and not everybody agrees with what they're doing. Um, and so I think that is an instance in which that license is common enough. It applies to a fairly wide swath of, of code out there. And there is a, a reason to think that people are going to disagree with what I'm doing as a company with my, you know, as, as much as I think I'm I'm benevolent, of course, there's always going to be somebody who is on the other side of that. So I think that that's one that I have heard, you know, more more teeth gnashing about and seen folks decide not to adopt because of that. There's one other and I don't actually remember the name of it, but that had a 
Um, a limitation, so it probably doesn't even qualify as an open source license under a industry definition, but it had a limitation for no use in any um, nuclear technology. And I had a, a large client encounter a component under this license in an, in an M&A context in a, a, as a buyer, and they decided that they would have to remediate it because they have customers that are nuclear power plants. And so there are, you know, real sort of real life issues that come up with something that somebody might have thought was sort of more of a conceptual or ideological requirement that that turns into a real consideration. And so definitely these are not throwaway issues. They're, they're worth thinking about, but the instances in which they become, you know, real issues for um, our clients tend to be less common. I think one place where it's interesting is dual licensing and also like dependencies, right? Do your dependencies match and are there licenses are there any open source license terms that kind of flow up based on those dependencies i think both those kind of raise interesting questions i think on the dual licensing or like multiple licensing models understanding which license applies to your usage is it the gpl license or is it some more permissive license is it the mit or is it the gpl license or a commercial license, because then if you haven't bought anything, you're kind of stuck with the GPL license. Um, so wrapping your head around that and like being diligent enough to know kind of which license applies where there are potentially multiple license licenses is uh, an important part of kind of policing your open source usage. And then for the dependencies, I, I don't know about your experience, John, but I think most of my clients have viewed kind of dependencies as kind of less important than the the top level third party code. So sometimes we get into like the various dependencies and fourth and fifth party and whatever, you know, go down that that rabbit hole. Um, but I think in general, you know, most of most of my clients have kind of gotten comfortable that doing their diligence on that top level component is the important piece. Yeah, I mean, I, so the technical answer, right, is every line of code in your product needs to be accounted for. The practical answer that I do see many of my clients using the approach of we're going to rely on the project that we reached out and found to have handled all this stuff properly, such that whatever license is applies at the top level is consistent with everything that's below it. And with the knowledge that if that was wrong, then we won't be the only ones out there that are subject to that issue, right? That we'll be sort of swimming swimming with the school on that issue. I certainly have other clients who take the view that we really do diligence is diligence. We need to tie out everything. And if we identify issues in the bill of materials for an open source project that's out there, you know, maybe we will continue and forge ahead with knowledge of, of the inconsistency, but we're also going to reach out to the project and help, you know, raise the issue and, and try and get it resolved. You know, that's the general um, sort of landscape is every, every line of code is either licensed properly or not, and you are either complying with all the licenses in your code base or not. And so that it does represent a risk. I think the dividing line is just how much you trust each of the sources of those top level dependencies. And I will say that there are certainly clients that I have that will say, we're gonna apply that trust for widely adopted third-party components where there are more one-offs, we may take a different view and go a level deeper.
John, you had mentioned that open source software licenses were designed with this traditional distribution model. And given the advent of software as a service and cloud computing, could you talk a little bit about how open source licenses have changed over time? Yeah, that's a that's a great observation. You know, the the licenses, like I said, sort of came out of an academic tradition where professors effectively were were trying to share code with one another. And at some point, there was a, a sort of an interest in promoting the open nature of code. And and you know, Richard Stallman and the GNU project are are big in that in that area. And the the establishment of the GNU General Public License is sort of the poster child for a copyleft effect. That was the introduction of that concept. The information wants to be free. The, hey, when when you share code, you should do it in a way that keeps it free, right? And at that time, the model for running software was you transfer a, or make a copy of it available to be run on another computer. And that just was the way that software was offered to folks. And so the the licenses for that sort of historical context reason had their compliance obligations um, really centered around distribution. So they would all say, even for the informational compliance, it's a license to use and modify and redistribute an original modified form. And when you distribute copies, here are the things that you have to do. And so the permissive licenses would say you have to provide our copyright notices, maybe a copy of the license, maybe you have to identify whether or not things have been modified, et cetera. And then the copyleft licenses would go on to say you have to provide certain source code or you know original or modified source code. That model begins to break down, or at least on the copyleft side um, in particular, and to a degree, the, the informational compliance side, breaks down in a cloud computing um, environment model where no copies are distributed. So if I'm running a cloud service, I install that code on my computer. Our big joke in our area is there is no cloud, there's just somebody else's computer, right? Like it's just my computer running that code that you access across a network connection. So I haven't distributed you a copy. I have enabled you to access and execute features and functionality of that software running on my computer. And therefore my compliance obligations, the copyleft obligations, the attribution obligations are not triggered. So the sort of next wave, and in particular, when you start seeing very large cloud providers coming up with just ways to enable the productization of an open source product as a service. And so it's just big prominent examples of this are Elastic and Amazon and, and the like. Some of those projects start to get worried that the benefit of their software and the, the, the benefit of the license requirements that they have are being sidestepped. So there has been sort of a proliferation of various solutions. The first, I think, um, along those lines was this is sort of a Pharaoh style of license. Those have an uh, a, a section that will say, for the purposes of the copyleft or the attribution requirements, making the features and functionality available to users across a network would constitute a distribution. You know, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that's the idea. There are a whole other suite of licenses coming out now trying to address the problem in, in different, or I, I wouldn't even call it a problem. The 
perceived efficiency in traditional open source licenses in different ways. And so there's a business software license that has more of like a time windowing regime, essentially, where there is a a restriction on the the use of the code that lasts for a particular time before it rolls over to a more permissive license. And that's to, designed to give the project really sort of the primary, this is where it's all gonna really to live. There's um, Elastic has a solution, MongoDB has a solution. There's there's a variety of new licenses coming out that are trying to address the that issue in a, in a variety of different ways. Many of them, because of the additional um, provisions, don't actually qualify under industry definitions of what an open source license is. Some of them are go trying to go through the process of being adopted or, or certified as, as open source, but we'll see where all that goes. I think the thing to keep in mind, though, is that not all of these licenses are the same. And, you know, the, the buckets that Andrew described earlier, you know, permissive and copyleft, and then weak copyleft and strong copyleft, they still exist, but they are not necessarily the only issues and only sort of sets of parameters and, and considerations that uh, that exist anymore. And so there is a need to to know a little bit more about the license that uh, some code is offered under and to understand how it applies and whether or not it's an actual open source license or whether it has different kinds of requirements. If I can jump in, John, I had a yeah, couple of thoughts while you're talking. So I think one thing we didn't address so far is, you know, when we talk about free, like the, the classic open source definition of free is free as in free speech, not free as in free beer, right? Also free as in free beer, but free as in free speech. But we also, you know, is the joke in in the open source world is free ain't free, right? That, that there are obligations. It doesn't mean it's free from a, you know, you don't have to necessarily pay a license fee, but the use and implement, implementation of open source often has a cost or a, a an you know, sometimes just in the form of an, an obligation that may or may not be a palatable one. But also, and this sort of, you'll, you'll hear this theme coming up over and over, really from my perspective, I think, Andrew, you probably share this, the biggest sort of piece of advice that we give our our clients is that use as much open source as you can as long as you are using it thoughtfully and responsibly. The the biggest hidden cost of use of, of open source is the the later trying to figure out what you've got and how to disclose it and what issues you may have caused unwittingly. And so being thoughtful and sort of deliberate about what and how you use open source will save tons of time and money down the road um, in later rounds of things like investment and acquisition diligence, you know, dealing with commercial, you know, dealing with your customers who want to know more about what's in the product and, you know, God forbid, actual enforcement actions when, if and when you could uh, run afoul of something unintentionally. Yeah. I had a I had a deal. I think Mary, you and I may have talked about this previously. I had a deal where a client was trying to buy a startup, and they had made their version one of their product available under the GPL license. And at some point in the diligence, we found that, and the client's like, "Well, why are we buying this? Yeah. <laughs> like, we can get it all for free under open source license. Like, why are we talking about paying for this?" they were able to eventually show that there were enough improvements from that first version to make it worthwhile, but that created a bit of a existential crisis for that deal. 
And I, I will say the difference between being a GPL licensee and a copyright owner is is real. Those are two different, significantly different things. And so I've, I've had similar situations where even representing open source companies that are trying to get sold and talking to lawyers across the table and, and who maybe have less experience in the area trying to get their heads around I don't understand why would we buy a company where the software is already out there and really gets to the licensing status of this particular piece of code is just one aspect of a business model. Um, there are lots of great business models out there that are built around some portion of a company's code being available without a license fee um, under an open source model. So, you know, that that's it's also a question of what else is there in the company? You're getting know-how and, and employees, you're getting customers, you're getting, you know, whatever code isn't part of the, the open source code base, you're getting, you know, oftentimes open source software is used as a, a sort of a loss leader or something that, that drives adoption of other products. You may have a thriving services business that is around support of that code base. There's lots of great businesses that are built around the notion of giving away some portion or some, some or all of your source code for free. Uh, it's just a matter of, again, sort of getting back to doing it thoughtfully in a way that that is deliberate and, and sort of hangs together. And there is a, a tricky aspect of I've, I've seen this go the other direction where people want to go from a permissive license to a copyleft license and you kind of have the opposite problem of well it's hard to get folks to to accept the notion that it will now have a copyleft obligation when you could just fork a, a permissively licensed version and maintain maintain the project going forward so there is an, an element of once the genie's out of the bottle, it's hard to put back in. So, so making those choices about if and when to open source code needs to be done very thoughtfully, but there are often, there's often great value in open sourcing code. Yeah. So I think one thing that was, that's been interesting in terms of the history of open source, like you were talking about, John, is how do we transition from these licenses or how do we interpret these licenses you know that are 20 30 years old now in a modern context right like if a license only grants rights to use modify or distribute what does that mean if you want to host that software like is hosting a lesser included right under distribution is it part of the yes. internal use right um so there are some like growing pains. I think most people have gotten comfortable with that, but like I think that's part of being thoughtful and uh, reasonable in terms of of your use. Because interpreting the the hosting right under distribution for like a GPL license may have a different effect than interpreting it under the BSD license. Could you talk a little bit about how the gaming industry has been using open source? In terms of gaming. I think that kind of transition from the older models of distributing hard copies or even virtual, uh, you know, soft copies, like we're seeing that that change in the gaming industry, right? Like we're seeing things like Xbox Cloud Gaming, we're seeing PlayStation Plus Cloud Emulation. So we're seeing the gaming industry kind of move through like the similar growing pains. I think distribution is still a big question like distributing copies of software is still a big question for gaming because things are so hardware dependent. You're still 
playing instances of that that copy of the game on your console, on your mobile phone, on your PC. So like that model is still like prevalent. It'll be interesting to see kind of how how much distribution goes away. You know, maybe the next version of Xbox or or PlayStation will be totally cloud gaming and like we won't have to worry about that model, but that's still a big a big piece of most, you know, game studios and, and distributors right now is, is that traditional model. I'd say too, like one of the the primary levers, John, that you mentioned was was distribution. I think another thing that that's also a big lever is modification. So that often triggers the viral terms under a number of the open source licenses that have their hereditary licenses. So I think that's another thing to be, to be mindful of. It's not just distribution that may trigger some of these viral terms. It could be modification. So so tweaking, adding a mod, which is you know a big part of the gaming industry modification. Uh, so that's another thing to be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would say gaming industries are are making the use of open source the same way any other software. The rest of the software industry is the software industry has moved away from monolithic software design and is now incredibly modular. And so, like I said earlier, the advice is typically use as much of this stuff as you can. You're going to get to to release much quicker by not reinventing the wheel. There's tons and tons of incredibly high quality open source software out there available for use. Again, with the, the big footnote being do it thoughtfully and responsibly to make sure that you can live with the implications of, of those choices. So, uh, you know, and in fact, what's more, I would say most software companies, including game companies, are realizing that in order to attract the most talent to the, the company, a big part of what engineers are asking in interviews is what is the company doing in the open source community? And I think a lot of software companies are really realizing that if we are not forward thinking in our participation in the open source community, we're going to lose out on being able to recruit the best engineering talent. And so I, I get a lot of, of clients coming to me and saying, we really want to be releasing code as open source. We want to be contributing to third-party open source projects. We want to be um, participating in bug bounty programs. We want to ensure that we as a, a company are one of the white hats. We're one of the folks that are have a good name in the industry about being a participant, being a contributor, and that you know allowing engineers a certain portion of their time to work on projects that really benefit the the broader open source community is has become a, a very common thing to see. So that both in the consumption side, I think game companies are similarly situated to other software companies. But also on that contribution distribution side, um, you really see uh, the whole industry moving towards a greater degree of engagement and interaction with the open source community. And assuming that companies may diligently try to follow the footnote of using it thoughtfully and respectfully, could you <laughs> briefly touch on the risks of open source and what would happen if a company didn't use it respectfully and thoughtfully? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so so what, right? This is the this is the question. So we've been talking so far all about what these licenses are and what they do and how they work. 
But what's the, it's the so what, right? What if I screw this up? So we're lawyers here. Let's, let's take a minute to talk about a couple of um, important cases. The first is a case called Jacobson v. Katzer, which is a, one of the sort of early, um, early cases here. I guess just as a sort of side note, there's been very little litigation, particularly out to a, a published decision in this area. So we have very little case law actually to go on. But the Jacobson v. Katzer case is in the hotly disputed area of Java model railroad software. Um, so why why these folks chose to litigate this one to a, a final decision, I don't know if I will ever know, but they were um, bitter rivals in the Java model railroad um, <laughs> area. And it, the, the license uh, was actually a permissive license, and the, the issue turned on the attribution requirement and whether or not there could be a, an enforcement for failure to, to comply with the attribution requirement. The kernel of a really important um, case law that came out of that case was the way that the attribution requirement is phrased is as a condition to the license. So subject to providing attribution, we grant you this license. Well, that subject to language is incredibly important. And what it means is if you fail to comply, you never had the license in the first place. And if you are using, distributing, modifying this software without a license, getting back to what we talked about at the very beginning, if you don't have a license, you don't have a license, you don't have permission, you're an infringer. Um, and so the, the most basic consequence of failing to comply with the, the terms of that license even if it's a permissive license and even if it's just attribution, is that you may be an infringer. Um, and so what does that mean? Infringement, liability, you know, depending on whether or not the work is, has been registered, there can be statutory damages, which are up to $150,000 per work infringed, so not inconsequential. And there can be actual damages. Well, okay, actual damages in the context of something that's being given away for free is maybe harder to prove, right? Which brings us to the second relevant case, which is uh, Artifacts v. Hancom, or I forget, maybe I have that backwards, Hancom v. Artifacts. <laughs> Andrew, do you remember? That's right, John, Artifacts v. Hancom. And that's, that's one. Andrew mentioned dual licensing earlier, and just briefly to describe what that is, that is offering software under a copyleft license, like the GPL, for free, right? But saying to the market, if you don't like the GPL because of the copyleft effect or for any other reason, frankly, we're happy to sell you a commercial license that doesn't have that restriction in it, right? Or that, that requirement, I guess I should say. So Artifacts is distributing software under a dual license model. They offer under GPL, they offer under a commercial license. The, the dispute there was failure to, to comply with the, with the copyleft requirement by an entity who had not purchased a, a commercial license. Well, there, the key sort of bit of case law is not only is this license enforceable in sort of an intellectual property um, context for failure to comply and there you, therefore you're an infringer, the license is enforceable as a contract. The, the licensor is free to choose the way that they ask for, you know, essentially compensation. And in the context of an open source license, it is, compliance with the, uh, the copyleft obligation and the attributions, and that's that's enough to form a contract. The consequence there is that you have access to contract damages, which are actual damages. And in the, that case, what the court basically said is that the actual damages 
take the form of actual money damages because you should have purchased a license. And in that case, it was substantial, it would have been substantial fees, and they could calculate that and show what those damages were. Um, so that, that's two consequences, infringement damages, money damages. In addition, because what we're talking about is misuse of someone else's intellectual property, courts are perfectly willing in the, in the U.S. to um, issue injunctions, to say you are not allowed to continue to distribute or use or, or modify or whatever you're doing with someone else's software without complying with the terms of the license. So a negative injunction is is a, a very real um, and potential likely possibility. Now, historically, we have we have taken, at least in the US, the the courts do not like giving what they call positive injunctions, forcing people to do things. They're they're happy to issue injunctions to not do things, right? So stop distributing the software in violation of the license. They are less likely to issue a positive injunction, and in this case, it would be comply with the copyleft effect. It, it has been our position historically that courts would be unlikely to force someone to turn over source code because this, the, the license required that. Now, there is a case that's currently going through the courts. It went up uh, on an appeal and is back down in a trial court that is starting to make that a possibility. And in particular, because it challenges the uh, another sort of historic way that we thought about open source licenses, which is to say it had to be the licensor that was enforcing. So it's, it's the licensor that comes and says, you didn't comply with my terms and therefore I'm gonna sue you for something. This case is really about does the, the recipient of the code have standing to come to a court and say, I was supposed to get source code here. I know it's not my code to, code to begin with, but the license said that, that this guy was supposed to pass along that code to me. Do I have standing to come and bring that suit? So that's an issue that's currently open and it will be interesting to follow and see where that lands. Um, so I guess stay tuned for podcast uh, version two, maybe next year. Andrew, what, did I miss anything important in the so what discussion? No, I think you hit most of the, the key points. I think maybe to put a little bit finer point on the, the current lawsuit and like the sub-licensees rights to enforce open source terms, we saw the CoKinetic case that, that was kind of a similar case where the sub-licensee sued the sub-licensor. So <laughs> Panasonic was building a flavor of Linux for entertainment devices on airplanes, like on the back of the, the seat, right? And CoKinetic was developing software to run on that to play games and stream TV and all that stuff. And so Panasonic's operating system was a, a flavor of Linux that they had modified. And uh, there was a dispute that arose between CoKinetic and Panasonic, to put it mildly. And the CoKinetic said that as part of the contract, Panasonic was supposed to make available their version of the, the source code for, for Linux, so CoKinetic could develop their, their programming. And so they, they sued to enforce the, the GPL terms and, and cause Panasonic to release their source code. And that settled, you know, John, to your, to your earlier point about not having a full decision interpreting the GPL, but it, that, 
claim survive summary judgment. So it seems like a court may be willing to to interpret the GPL and, and enforce those rights for the sublicensee. So it'll be really interesting. That it's so it seems so unusual, but it, it'll be interesting if if that does get enforced. Yeah, we'll say you know on top of all of that, as a software you know. We are largely talking about software companies here, right? Software companies make their living by commercializing their intellectual property. And I, I really do feel like on top of everything, you know, so legal remedies and legal risks, a company that makes its living commercializing its intellectual property gets a big black eye when it gets determined that they were not respectful of other people's intellectual property, which is really what violating an open source license amounts to. So I think there's a really, you know, not insignificant element of this that is around reputational harm and the the notion that you really want to be a good citizen um, because you want your rights to be respected. You want to show that you are a, a res <laughs> that you respect the rights of others. So I think there are it, the, those intangibles about being a um, a company that that is not kind of seen to re respect other people's rights is is very significant. I will say in the the handful of litigation that you know has settled in this area, most you know getting back to this notion of there being ideology in in the in the industry, most of the open source licensors when they've brought claims in the past have not been looking for big paydays. It's it's sort of a not inconsistent with the ideology of wanting the compliance to say we're, we're coming after you for massive amounts of money. So largely they're looking for, for compliance and oftentimes what you see is a settlement that involves, you know, some agreement to disclose some source code, but also adoption of long-term, um, you know, an open source compliance czar, really significant, I don't want to say intrusions, but beefing up policies and processes to handle open source compliance internally that have real cost and, and um, slow down businesses. And so, again, you know, that may not be a massive amount of money that you have to sort of shell out in damages but it may increase your costs significantly over time to have an agreement like that hanging around your neck. So again, I, my, my view is compliance upfront is always the best policy. And the best way to do that is to have good policies and processes around ingestion and use of open source so that you know what's there and, and know what your obligations are. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. I think one other risk, if you don't do that, not so much like monetary damages or disputes with licensors, but you know, going through due diligence through like a financing or through an exit, people are going to find that stuff. They're going to ask about your open source. They may ask for a code scan. They may ask for a black duck code scan. They may ask for um, some kind of self audit, but in some way they're going to ask for all your open source. They're going to ask about your open source policy, third party software policy. And if it looks like you haven't got that that house in order, uh, or that part of your house in order, like that can cause problems. Like that may 
increase the amount of diligence they want to do. Then they increase like the reps and warranties that they they ask for in the the agreement with you for the the purchase agreement or the financing agreement. That that may drag out the the diligence and, and like drag out the deal timeline. It may increase deal in uncertainty. You know, you may have if you didn't do your diligence at the front end, they may ask for remediation for you to get things cleaned up on the back end before they purchase. Um, your business. So in addition to those kind of potential risks of like monetary damages, there may be other pain points created if you don't keep your open source house in order. Yeah, that issue cannot be overstated. <laughs> the, uh, slowing down a corporate level deal because of um, sort of housekeeping issues effectively is is not a position that anybody wants to be in. So yeah, Andrew, good, good call out. So for companies that are in compliance and have a good open source policy, do they face any risks using open source software, either from a security or a business perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. I And I mean, yes, there there is risk associated with using other people's code. I mean, there's risk associated with your own code from a security and, and business standpoint. But let, let's talk about a couple real quick here. I mean, the, the policies and processes are the best best way to make sure that you're limiting those risks, being thoughtful about who your customers are and what they care about and how you're going to be able to go to customers and say, this is this is what we've got, this is what the issues are or aren't, and this is how we handle it, I think gives, gives customers a great deal of comfort, knowing that if you're dealing with tier one auto manufacturers, if you're dealing with medical technology that's life-saving technology, if you're dealing with the government, there are idiosyncratic reasons why a particular um, you know, customer base might have, have particular kinds of concerns. And so you wanna just target your policies and processes to that. You mentioned a very, very important word there, which is security. Um, security, I think, is actually one of the more important sort of areas that often gets overlooked. And I don't mean to say because open source software is, is less secure. In fact, quite the opposite. Once upon a time, that may have been the case. Nowadays, I think it's sort of widely considered to be the fact that the source code is available makes it more um, quick to have issues identified and resolved than proprietary software is. The security issue with open source is around updates. So unlike a commercial proprietary software, you don't have a vendor pushing security patches to you. It's up to you to know what's in your code base and go and get the most updated version. And in particular, in the context of open source, where you may have modified that code, going and applying patches to a modified code base may actually be operationally a, a tricky thing to do. Um, so you have to have a, a sort of mechanism and a, and a process in place to actually make sure that stuff happens. Just as a sort of a, a plug for how important this stuff is, the most high profile security issue um, in recent memory was the Heartbleed vulnerability in OpenSSL. That vulnerability resulted in a number of incredibly high profile breaches, lost a ton of money and a ton of sensitive information for a variety of very um, prominent organizations, large black eyes um, associated with those breaches. The thing to know about those is that for the most part, the breaches themselves occurred after the vulnerability was identified and after the patch was available. 
those breaches were the result of failure to apply a security patch, not the presence of a security vulnerability in the abstract. It was not you know, taking advantage of an unknown vulnerability. It was actually taking advantage of a known and patched vulnerability that, um, that vendors had not taken advantage of. That was the same thing with Equifax a few years ago. That was the struts vulnerability that they just forgot to patch. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Panama Papers for all those lawyers out there. Panama Papers law firm had a, a bunch of confidential information ripped out and leaked because they had an unpatched version of, of Drupal. So we did talk a little bit about the security risks. Andrew, what are some other types of risks that come with using open source, even in compliance with a policy? Yeah, there can be business risks with how the open source projects are managed. Like, for example, what happens if if the project becomes abandoned and no one's supporting it anymore? You know, there may not be, you know, future bug fixes or or patches or new features added. Um, what happens if if you've built your game engine, for example, or some other key feature on some open source project, and then a competitor of yours takes over that project and, and takes it down a path, you know, makes it available under some some license that's incompatible with yours or or takes it some other way that doesn't work with your, your business for whatever reason. So we've talked a lot about the risks about what happens when you use open source in violation or the risks that just come associated with using open source generally. Why do people use it then? Like come given all of these risks, why is it popular? Well, I mean, I think the most basic answer to that question is because there is a massive amount of incredibly high quality software available without any charge. Um, I, I mean, so it's, you can't overstate the the value that the open source community is providing to the software development community. You know, to sort of flesh that out even more, you know, what is it about open source that makes it valuable? You know, there's a, an axiom known, how, how does it be known as Linus's law? Linus Torvalds is the primary copyright holder and architect of, of the Linux kernel that many eyes make all bugs shallow, right? That the fact that source code is widely available is actually helpful in identifying and fixing bugs. And so the, the quality actually is uh, once upon a time might have been thought of to be lower than proprietary software because you didn't have people being paid to, to develop it. But the sort of modern view there is that open source software is incredibly high quality and largely in part, uh, largely due to the fact that um, there are more people available uh, to, to, to find and fix bugs. There, it decreases time to market, modularity in, in software design, you know, being able to leverage pieces that are already out there to do things that, you know, you need done and you can do them in ways that, um, that are sort of standardized across the industry, incredibly effective. I should pause here for some t uh, statistics to give a sense for how prevalent open source software usage is. Black Duck Software, who's uh, now owned by Synopsys, provides third-party software audit services, among other things. Essentially, they're scanning the code bases of proprietary products to identify third-party open source components used in those products. They put out a report every year that tracks metrics across the industry, um, and their, their 2020 report showed that 99% of code bases they scanned contained open source, and that over 70% of the lines of code they scanned were, in fact, open source software. 
So that's obviously a massive amount. Um, and as an additional bit of perspective, the 2015 report showed only 35% of the code scan was open source. So massive growth as well. The the fact that you're leveraging open source software to provide um, sort of fundamental building blocks of your product also means that you're quicker and easier in onboarding um, new engineers because they're familiar with the code base. They've you've worked with that code before. Um, you have large and enthusiastic communities of developers and users that can sort of contribute to the the uh, health and vitality of that code base. You know, you can oftentimes you use it as an as an upsell to um, for premium services or or premium um, products. I, I have talked already about recruiting. Um, it's a really incredible um, tool to to recruit high quality engineering talent to you know show your use and adoption of of open source software. And there's just a sort of a goodwill aspect, um, building goodwill in the community, like the sort of don't don't be evil, right? The the contribution to to the open source community, and a use and adoption, and and really um, being an open source forward company comes with a lot of um, sort of good cred in the software industry. I'm sure there's a million more good reasons to use open source, but those are the main ones that come to mind for me. Yeah, I, I think that. Uh... For sure, you know it's it's compliance. You know, making sure that the like you're you're making code that is secure and and safe, and that you're staying on top on top of that. And I think you touched upon this earlier, John. Like being able to attract talent, they want to know like what open source technologies you're using. I mean, I've had deals where we're having a hard time attracting new developers because they were built on some old outdated technology stack they weren't using the latest and greatest you know whether that was react or you know whatever technology it was at that point so staying on the cutting edge uh not reinventing the wheel but using commodity software or you know sometimes specialized open source projects um so you don't have to you don't have to spend time building those like key pieces in the sense that they're fundamental pieces, you can focus on like your value add with that technology. Yeah. So we've covered quite a bit of ground today. So as a closing thought, I was hoping that each of you could leave the listeners with the biggest piece of advice you could give to a fledging company with founders who may not have gotten any legal expertise yet. Did you want to start, Andrew? <laughs> I, I bet you can guess what mine is. <laughs> Have thoughtful and and deliberate policies and processes around how you use third party code. Get some advice. You know, don't rely on your own sort of in industry experience. Going into your rounds of financing, being able to say, we talked to a lawyer, we understand what the issues are. Here's our policy. Here's our process. Here's our list. You know, keeping your house in order is probably the best way to to sail through those those early transactions and to sort of set yourself up for the greatest degree of success. You stole my thought. Um <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I mean I it doesn't that's it. That's it. That's, we all have the same thought, right? There's yeah. no it's not one size fits all. It's work with somebody to to understand what your business is and what's important to you. And I, I should say that policy and that process doesn't need to be avoid GPL at all costs. I, you know, it's different for different companies. 
So it, it really is about making sure that you work with somebody who understands the issues, understands the industry, and understands you and your product, and works with you to come up with a policy and a process that doesn't, you know, I don't, I also don't mean to say you should have some sort of, again, mon like large monolithic thing where everything has to go to outside counsel. Quite the opposite. I, I really feel like the best and most effective policies are ones that that really enable engineers and business people to do their jobs quickly and effectively without stepping in it. And so we, we work with tons and tons of tech founders and we understand that, you know, businesses move at light speed. And so policies can't get in the way of growth. They have to support and enable growth. We get that, work with somebody who gets that. Um, there are lots of folks out there that, that do this. But talk to somebody and get get that help and get that advice. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the key. And may, that's not to say that there aren't like interesting things happening in gaming and open source, right? Like we've seen companies that are, are trying to integrate blockchain technology, which is based on open source software in, in gaming. So I think there are a lot of interesting intersections between open source and, and gaming, and you need to think about where those intersections are, how you're using that that software, that third-party software, and have the thoughtful and, and reasonable policies for like when you can use it, how you can use it, um, what licenses are acceptable, and what use cases. I think Johnny made a great point. It doesn't. It shouldn't be monolithic. It shouldn't be like never this. Maybe if it, if the license says no commercial use, maybe then. Like we'll we'll yeah. totally reject all those that category, but I think in general you're right. Like it should be a, a thoughtful policy and a useful procedure that's not a roadblock that allows you to to keep developing and keep iterating. And there are a ton of tools that that are built for that purpose, right? That to like streamline the the review and approval processes to keep or to help in, enable those companies to have their third-party software house in order and continue to, to develop and, and be competitive. I guess the, the sort of corresponding parting note is we also recognize that companies have a variety of different models and some of them may be sort of open source forward models. I guess the thing that I would say is really have, have a well thought out story for why you do what you do. It may be that you're doing something that is, is unique and interesting and, and sort of forward thinking. You want to be able to, to tell that story in a way that you feel comfortable with. Not everybody has to, you know, even agree with you or get it, but if you feel comfortable with your story and you've worked with some lawyers to sort of help um, make sure that it's been pressure tested and vetted that it works. I, I think you're gonna you're gonna find that you go into again go into those rounds of financing or customer negotiations or whatever it is to deal with a third party when you can really articulate and explain why you're doing the things that you're doing and then and have some sort of documentation around this is this is how it works. This is who we are and what we do. Thank you for your time today. Wilson Cincini advises a wide variety of clients in the gaming industry. If you'd like more information about the legal issues arising in the gaming space, please check out our Electronic Gaming Group's newsletter. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to any member of our Electronic Gaming Group. Thank you for tuning in, everyone.